Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Buck Sexton here. Between the terrorist attack in London and the firing of a missile by North Korea over Japan, I think we should start this Friday with a Buck Brief. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. As I approached the station, everyone was like piling out. Like uh, people weren't even running; they were falling over each other and, and and just fleeing. I guess. I was just about to walk into the station, and there were a few people um, sort of standing outside, and there was a woman sitting on the pavement. Um, sort of with blood around her and she was crying and she was really hysterical and I walked into the station there was just blood on the floor and people running down the stairs screaming like get out people crying and and running and the whole station was evacuated but people were coming out the station sort of covered in in blood and dirt the fifth terrorist attack to hit the UK this year uh, this time a homemade bomb uh, didn't it seems fully detonated. It had a, a partial detonation or an incomplete detonation, uh, but it did manage to injure uh, a bunch of people. Twenty nine people wounded. No one killed, thankfully. Uh, it seems like the bomb did not uh, have a particularly skilled bomb maker, although he did put a timer on it. There were some uh, there were some details that you would expect from an individual who might have had training. The Islamic State. Uh, has claimed responsibility for the attack via AMAC, the uh, news agency that, the so-called news agency that ISIS uses. So we have an ISIS attack on a London-bound subway. It was heading for central London from the suburbs of London on, on a train, and 29 hurt, no one killed, yet another terrorist incident. Here's the police in London. At 8.20 this morning at Parsons Green Tube Station, um, there was an explosion on a tube train. Um, police have attended. We now assess that this was a detonation of an improv- improvised explosive device. As you'll have seen, the reports of 18 injuries, and I understand most of those to be flash burns. The scene currently remains cordoned off, and the investigation continues. So, no one killed by this device, and... That seems like a, a near miracle. I, I will I'll follow up and make sure that I have all the details for you that we can on what the actual device was and uh, what we know about what it tells us about whether this is likely an individual who just looked on the Internet and tried to do this on his own or somebody who might have had a bit of help. Uh, that's why the device matters in the analysis of this beyond the obvious law enforcement purposes. Uh, initially, it was reported that it looked like it was a partial detonation, but now as I'm looking at this, they, it might have just been not a particularly powerful device that uh, was set off in the subway. This is a script that we're all quite familiar with at this point. 
I was on Fox News this morning talking about this incident. And as soon as I as soon as we had the details of bomb goes off subway, London, we, we, we know it's a jihadist pretty much. Right. The chances are 99 percent at that point. So I said it's the overwhelming statistical likelihood is that this is a jihadist incident. And this is we're going to find out that the individual here probably had contact with someone who maybe was himself a radical or had contact with radicals online and was a Muslim. And we'll hear that it'll be the same story. You, you always get the same story. There are some variations, but the, the basic facts of it are uh, young Muslim male uh, seemed everything seemed pretty normal but then he got a little weird then he got a little more religious but i never thought he'd do this and oh he had this is the way the media reports it oh he had some friends he actually played soccer once in a while or football uh and and, and who would have thought that he'd ever become a terrorist oh no and then they'll after a few days has passed they'll look into this a bit more and i'll be oh well actually he was in contact with an isis handler or he was going uh and spending time at a mosque with a known radical who was on the radar of the authorities, right? It, it always starts out with, who, who could have ever thought? This is the way the media talks about it. Who could have ever thought this would happen? And then the details come in, and we go, yeah, this is exactly what we thought happened, actually. There's nothing surprising here. There's nothing unusual. In fact, this is the standard. Here we are. It's a, it's a Friday. I would love to be spending our time focused on single-payer health care and issues of policy that will affect our day-to-day lives in that regard. But instead, we have to think about, one, you've got a terrorist still very much at large in London. Two, you always have the possibility, and I would even argue the probability, of follow-on attacks from that individual or from other lone wolves, because this is, terror is about the theater of violence, the theatricality of killing and wounding and maiming, because it is a psychological war that they are engaged in even more so than it is a day-to-day operational terrorist uh, battle, right? They, they're trying to have long-term after effects from these incidents that change the way our societies operate, that change the way we treat each other, that change the way we live our lives. So they try to get some momentum coming out of this for more carnage and mayhem. So there's always that possibility. And this is why you'll see reports about how the various security services or you know, police here at home, wherever it may be, are ramping up, right? They're they're getting ready for the possibility that there will be uh, follow-on attacks. In the case of London, we don't have anyone in custody yet. So you have someone, at least one person, and it may be a cell, so there might be three or four operational individuals that were involved in this. And they're still at large. Very unlikely that I think they're just going to keep or this. Let's say it's one person. We don't know yet. We don't know how many individuals, but let's say it's one person just so I can speak to you without having to run in circles. This individual is unlikely to think that he can. And I will. Uh, the overwhelming likelihood is that it is a he. Uh, ISIS has already claimed responsibility, so I think, despite what they might think over at MSNBC, we can probably rule out the Unitarians. I don't think they were a part of this. You know, I, I don't think the Episcopalians were uh, building this this IED. So now we think, what will this person do? London, as 
so many journalists with access to Wikipedia will tell you today is a place where there are a lot of closed circuit TV cameras. So they're going to be running through all the footage. They're going to be trying to work backwards from the incident and see if they can tell who the individual is. I would assume that anybody who had even a basic understanding of terrorist tradecraft would probably try to hide their identity at some level if they knew they were going to be engaged in this attack. It could be as simple as, you know, a hat and glasses, right? But maybe not. Terrorists can be sloppy. This terrorist certainly built a bomb that managed to kill no one, although I know it wounded, it, it hurt people, but it didn't didn't kill anybody, which makes me think that there, uh, that his proficiency is limited, which is all to the good, obviously. this is It, it is uh, a strange way to think about it. It is a good thing that uh, this person wasn't good at being a terrorist. Otherwise, we'd have a lot of dead people on our hands. But I do worry because terrorists like the theater of the violence. That's why they like to build bombs. But some of them understand that the carnage you can inflict with day-to-day items, forget about trying to build some at-home IED, mixing chemical compounds. If they hadn't done that in Spain, remember the Barcelona terror cell just a matter of weeks ago, that was a large cell with pretty good tradecraft, went off the grid, went into what was a safe house, and were not disrupted by the security services. They had one imam that radicalized the whole bunch, chose brothers because brothers are less likely to turn on each other. So he had cell cohesion and limited opportunities for security services in Spain to break up that cell and to get get in front of it before anything could happen. But if they had gone for vehicular attacks and not tried to build bombs right away, if you had had... I I believe there are about a dozen of them. If you had had the dozen or so terrorists involved in Spain all choose vehicles and then follow on attacks with knives or guns. I know they had fake suicide vests on. The casualties would have most, most likely been much higher. More people would have been killed. More people would have been maimed by these jihadist maniacs if they hadn't tried to build bombs. Because it was only when they destroyed their safe house through faulty bomb-making techniques, which the moment you start mixing these compounds, and I, from my time at the NYPD and, and before, I've had enough experience around people that really know. I was not an explosives expert, but people that really know bombs, they say that you're trying to, trying to make this stuff at home. This is a, you know, do not try this at home situation with, with any of this bomb stuff. It's very, uh, you know, for, for any purpose, right? Never mind terrorism, but it's it's very unstable. It's very difficult to do well, especially if you don't have training and the facility for it so in this case i worry that in london this this again i'm assuming it's a guy this guy will this jihadist just try to get access to the nearest van maybe he even hijacks a car with a knife and then decides that he's going to just mow down as many people in a public square or park as he can that's why i think we have to now think about these Uh, these terrorist attacks in slightly different terms because the spectacular attack gave way to the lone wolf paramilitary style uh you know one-off that that was more of a a standard and they would try to build a bomb or but now that we're in the era of vehicular attacks any uh, any suicidal jihadist lunatic can get behind the wheel of a car and do a lot of damage. So this is why finding this person, it's very unlikely that he's going to just try to reintegrate himself into British society and pretend that this this whole incident where he tried to kill a bunch of people on a subway never happened, right? So 
the possibility of a follow-on attack is very real. And right now there's a manhunt underway, of course. And there are some reports that police are worried about an additional attack. And I think they should be. I would be. This is uh, this is an incident where you can expect this person will not go quietly and could try to do a lot more damage. So we'll be following any updates throughout the show on this. Um, we did have... Some responses from, first, of course, our our Commander-in-Chief. Terrible thing. This keeps going and going. And we have to be very smart. We have to be very, very tough. Which perhaps we're not nearly tough enough. But that is just an absolutely terrible thing. In fact, I'm going to call the Prime Minister right now. We have to be very smart. We have to be very, very... Perhaps we're not nearly tough enough. That was President... Trump. You also have uh, National Security Advisor McMaster saying the following. The United States, of course, stands in solidarity with the people of the United Kingdom and France. We will continue to work tirelessly with our partners to prevent attacks. And of course, the United States remains committed to defeating terrorist organizations as well as their evil ideology. We will defend our people and our values against these cowardly attacks. And we will always stand with countries around the world that do the same. As somebody who worked on this issue professionally before I was in media and the CIA's counterterrorism center in one capacity and then later on at the NYPD intelligence division also dealing just dealing with the homegrown jihadist threat primarily versus dealing with jihadists abroad at the CIA. uh, There's a frustration that sets in with the analysis of this with the so what what do we do now what do we do now you turn on the tv they'll they'll trot out all these experts some of them some of them are actual experts a lot of them are not and they'll tell you the same thing that you already know that you've heard a hundred times i think one of the problems we face now is that we're becoming numb to this kind of terrorism because of its frequency and we are also pushed away from having an open and honest discussion about what the real root causes of this are. Ideology, in this case, jihadism, radical Islam, is the precondition. You can put anything else you want after it, but you do not have a terrorist incident like this without an ideological ignition. And the ideological ignition that is by far the biggest threat around the world, including the Muslim world, and in Europe and here in America, comes from within Islam. In fact, you had McMaster's National Security Advisor talking about their evil ideology. So instead of just saying, you know, we come together with our allies and we're going to be vigilant and you already know all of that. I want to spend a little time with you today as somebody with actual expertise in this subject, uh, unlike a vast majority of the folks that are going to be commenting on it a lot. I want to walk you through some of the ideology and let's let's have an let's have an honest conversation about jihadism, the roots of jihadism, how we get to a place where you now have individuals running around in the UK who want to destroy it. We'll get to that. Buck Sexton here with you doing some analysis of the uh, terror attack in London and also the ideology, the jihadism uh, that inspired it. Um, 844-900-BUCK. If you've got some thoughts on any of this, would like to hear from you. I know it's a Friday, so I'd like to take 
a good number of calls, although I'm going to spend some time on this national security issue, and then a little bit on North Korea as well, although these are two places where much of what there is to say on, on, on a news front is going to be very familiar to you, right? With North Korea, you have a very unwinnable situation for the Kim regime, but also we have no way of really stopping them. So it's just this continued aggressive stalemate. Uh, And then on the terrorism side, the answers are unsatisfying that you get from experts after this. It is uh, difficult to hear, or at least for me, I, I, I lose patience with, you know, we need to be vigilant and we need to understand that we should not you know, Islamophobia is the threat. Well, that's what the way the left treats this stuff. And I saw some some comments about wasn't it? I think Theresa May said Trump isn't helpful. And on the front page of the New York Times, this was right before I came in. You had terrorist attack in London. And I forget what the specific headline was, but it was also, you know, prime minister tells Trump he's not helping or something. And it's like with the New York Times, even when, when there's a when they. When a uh, deranged uh, Islamic terrorist tries to kill a bunch of people on the subway, Trump is still somehow the problem. I I think that tells us a lot. I think that gives you a really good sense of what their mentality is. And like I said, just wait for it. When When they finally get this guy... There'll be some story about, no, you know, nobody saw this coming. And, you know, he was clean shaven for so many years and used to like to watch movies. And, you know, terrorists are not mutants from another dimension. Yeah. I mean, they have families, too. Right. But but they always run these stories as as though they're trying to work very hard to humanize the jihadist terrorists so that what we we don't think that they're that bad. I don't know what the conclusion that the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others want us to draw from that, but it's not good. Uh, Felix in Pennsylvania. Welcome to Freedom Hut, sir. Hey, Buck. You know what? I wanted to give you a double thumbs up on your historical deep dives. You're really quite the eloquent storyteller. Oh, well, thank you, sir. You know, we're, we're, we'll pepper them in here and there. I, you know, I'll, I'll pick some, I'll be picking my shots with those. But I, I think once in a while, it's a nice change up. And I think that the response on Facebook so far from it has been really positive. I'm glad you liked it, Felix. I, I know you give it to me straight, so. Yeah, okay. Now, you know, I want to touch on something really quick since we're talking, you know, about this, this, uh, this Islam thing. You know, it's been going on for, what, the last 1,400 years, this clash of two cultures and civilizations, and they don't want to own up to it. As a matter of fact, and I think it was 1795, I think it was Thomas Jefferson and John Adams traveled to London to meet with the Bay of Algiers and to query of him as to why he attacks our shipping and enslaves our people. And at that time, there were about two and a half to three million white European slaves in North Africa and these Muslim countries. And to top that off, our Department of the Navy was founded in response to this Islamic threat. All true. This is all what what he's saying, everybody, is all all accurate in terms of the Navy. And we sent over uh, six frigates to deal with the Barbary uh, Barbary states. So, Felix Shields, hi, man. Thank you. And uh, I'll get into this some more right after the break. Stay with me. Welcome back. Buck Sexton here with you. We're talking about the uh, terror attack in... London, a suburb of London, and I'm trying to apply as much of my uh, ex-CIA, CTC, and NYPD Intel Division background to this as I can, and as I always do in these circumstances. Here's a a 
a good example of what I was talking about before with the frustration that I find with this. Uh, Washington Post tweets out the following story. Is it even possible to protect a public transit system from terror? The answer they're going to come up with is basically no. And if you have individuals who subscribe to a belief system that killing innocents in non-Islamic countries and killing Muslims in Islamic countries who do not agree with their interpretation of Islam, you're already going to be in trouble. Right? There's no way to uh, completely deal with every security measure and, and every possible plot. That's never going to happen. In a free society, there will be vulnerability. So, I mean, I can save you the time of going through the Washington Post, and they'll probably scare you by saying, on trains, have even less security. As though we all need TSA pat-downs now to get on the train, right? That's it's not an option. I certainly hope it's not an option. And because th- then it will be, well, what about buses? And, and then it will be, what about public gatherings? And then it will be, don't leave your home. We live in a free society. There will be risks. The Washington Post, though, won't deal with, as I said, the precursor, the necessary precondition. The first step in all of this is a belief in a form of Islam. And then you can have these kinds of attacks. And so you have to look at the problem. You have to name the problem. So to dive into this together, I I want to bring your attention to a story that was uh, from a few days ago and a situation elsewhere in the world to illuminate what's happening in London. Because to talk about in the context of London, what they'll do is you'll have all, oh, you'll have you'll have spokespersons for. You know, the 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 Islamic Council of the UK and they'll come out and say, you know, look at one one hundredth of one percent is a terrorist or has extremist views or what. Actually, when you look at the support for Sharia law and the polling in the UK as well as elsewhere, it's actually not one one hundredth of one percent. It's 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 enough that it's scary. You know, it, it, whether it's eight percent of a population or 20 percent of a population or, you know, you go around Europe And you start to look at what the Muslim populations believe. I'm not saying they're terrorists. I'm just saying what they believe, these minorities within the majority. And it's troubling. It's troubling on the issues of freedom of expression, of women's rights. Look, we're in a battle in this country for freedom of expression. I'll talk to you about that a bit in the next hour. But if I have, yeah, I will have time for that. Uh, But I wanted to focus on, for a few moments, what's happening. Well, first, a, a cleric. In And then also the situation surrounding him in Indonesia. I know terrorist attack in London. Buck, why do you want to tell us about Indonesia? Well, here's why. And if you follow me, I, I think you will find this worthwhile. It is it is absolutely more worthwhile than what you hear, which is some people pounding the table. You know, we got to kill all the terrorists and we've got to be tough and we got to stop them. Yeah. OK, we all agree on that. And then the other side on the left, you're going to have like, maybe if you were nicer to them. It's, no, that's not going to work. Oh, maybe it's because there's poverty. A lot of poor people don't strap on suicide vests. So those are the idiot explanations. But they're still out there. And they'll get a lot of play. And they'll put experts on. And they, they like to put experts on. And they did this to me at CNN sometimes. They'll put experts on who will. And they're not real experts, by the way. But they love to have somebody who's from an ethnic minority that is associated with Islam to come on. And basically play the race card slash Islamophobe card against anybody who wants to talk about terrorism honestly. That's that's like 101 terrorism analysis for Democrats and the left wing media. That's what they do. So because you're here with me, in the Freedom Hub, we're going to we're going to skip that nonsense. It's a big waste. 
So let's talk about some things that matter. I mentioned Indonesia. Why? Well, here's why. There was a an interview with a cleric in Indonesia who has a large following. His name is Yahya Stakov. He is 51 years old, and he is general secretary of an organization that is Nadal Atul Ulema, which you're like, what is that? Well, it has 50 million members, so it's big. It is, in fact, the largest Muslim organization in the largest Muslim country in the world. Indonesia, which has getting close to 300 million people and is uh, overwhelmingly Muslim, although there are some areas of Bali, which people know about for vacations and things like that, is uh, Hindu, and there are other there are parts of it that are uh, ethnic Chinese. And But nonetheless, it's a Muslim-majority country, and not enough people in this country know about the history of Indonesia and its uh, oppression of and, uh, well... East Timor, which was a Christian, a tiny Christian uh, outpost within Indonesia and how it was, how terribly it was treated and and all of the the horrible stuff that went on there. Not often talked about, but nonetheless, uh, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. And we have a guy from the largest Muslim organization in the largest Muslim country in the world giving an interview to Time magazine. He says the following. and I think you should all hear it. Question. Many Western politicians and intellectuals say that Islamist terrorism has nothing to do with Islam. What is your view, Indonesian cleric, who is the head of a 50 million person Muslim organization, largest Muslim majority country in the world? By the way, number two is India, even though it's a majority Hindu country. It's such a large country that its Muslim population is second in the world for any country because, you know, India is like a billion people. Uh, But. The Muslim population in Indonesia is larger. Okay. Here's what this guy says. Uh, Western intellectuals say it has nothing to do with Islam. What is your view? His response. Quote, Western politicians should stop pretending that extremism and terrorism have nothing to do with Islam. There is a clear relationship between fundamentalism, terrorism, and the basic assumptions of Islamic orthodoxy. So long as we lack consensus regarding this matter, we cannot gain victory over fundamentalist violence within Islam. Radical Islamic movements are nothing new. They've appeared again and again throughout our own history in Indonesia. The West must stop ascribing any and all discussion of these issues to Islamophobia. Or do people want to accuse me, an Islamic scholar, Of being an Islamophobe, too. Wow, right? Isn't that refreshing? This guy's saying, look, he he advocates for moderate Islam. He advocates for reform within the faith. And this isn't some guy who's like a puppet of, you know, the American media or something, right? This is a guy who's got a huge following in Indonesia. And he is saying... That in the West, these people who refuse to say that Islam has a terrorism problem, they're clowns, they're idiots, they're jokers. But it's obviously deadly serious stuff, but they're imbeciles. Straight up. They're pathetic PC cowards. Okay, well, I'm glad we've established that. That'll make our discussions here even easier. Um, Although we already, of course, knew this. So I think that I think this is fascinating. Do you think that the media really picked this up? By the way, no, no, this guy. Let's not. You know, we don't want to have. The, we don't want to talk about this guy. Let's talk about Islamophobia. 
let's let's take a uh, let's take a story about a girl who claims that somebody said something mean about her hijab on the subway and make it a national news story now because you know Islamophobia. A lot of people reading the Huffington Post can go cry about it, and then they'll find out that it was fake, and they'll say, "Oh, well, you know, we're just raising awareness, raising awareness of what jerks they are." All right, here's the next question. What basic assumptions within traditional Islam are problematic? Remember, this is a journalist asking this Muslim scholar with a huge following in Indonesia to go into the doctrine, the basic assumptions, as he calls it, of Islam, and tell us what's problematic. You're already way beyond what you could get. You know, if if it was Buck saying this in the old CNN days, they'd be, you know, you're such an Islamophobe. Oh, my gosh. Why do you know you? always, Always amazing to me the stuff that you'll... Stuff that you'll hear on some of these networks. But anyway, here's the question is what basic assumptions within traditional Islam are problematic? The scholar, the Muslim scholar answers as follows. The relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims, the relationship of Muslims with the state and Muslims relationship to the prevailing legal system wherever they live within the classical tradition, the relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims is assumed to be one of segregation and enmity, as in Muslims who believe in classical Islamic interpretation, separate themselves from the rest of the community, and do not like people outside the community that they are in. Now, that's not all Muslims, but it is people that take this interpretation, which is the classical orthodox interpretation, according to this scholar, with tens of millions of people who are followers of his. Can, can we get some guy to come over? Oh, yes, I'm a professor from the University of California at, at Who Cares, and I'm here to tell you that Islamophobia is the primary problem that we face. And no, no, I, I'm a scholar. I, excuse me, sir. I, I, I took a semester and a half of Farsi. I, I don't want to hear it. I've got a fake British accent, and I'm on TV now. That's what you get, you know? professors they'll put on they'll you know all this stuff all these you know the fancy intellectual types from different schools whatever they'll put them on and say oh no anybody who makes these claims about islam is a bigot not making claim about every individual muslim just like and i think this is a good illustration if you had met somebody from behind the iron curtain in the age of soviet domination if you had met somebody and you sat down with them. Would you think that they're a bad person? Of course not. Right? There's hundreds of millions of people. It's not their fault. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're. but would you have said that the Kremlin's got some pretty bad ideas and there's some stuff that needs to get worked out? I think the answer is yes. Could you say that there are some ideas that are at the very basis of uh, of Marxism that at least are you could be sympathetic to? I mean, yeah, maybe you have that discussion, right? But because this is in the religious sphere instead of the political sphere, we're all supposed to just step aside and not want to touch it. But no, here we have an Islamic scholar talking about this. So he says that the relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims and the relationship with the state and the relationship to the legal system is all problematic under traditional interpretation of Islam. So is he is he a self-hating Muslim? Is that what we're going to be told? Uh, and I have to ask, why hasn't this interview gotten more... I mean, yeah, a journalist did cover this, did put it out there. This seems like it's worth some time, don't you think? This seems like the kind... And this was just from... Uh, this was published September 7th, okay? So this is recent. I'm not reaching back into history. I could have, but... I've been wanting to talk to you about this for a few days. 
I'm not going to say that I was waiting for the next terrorist attack, but I'm not going to say that it didn't cross my mind that there would be an opportunity to talk about this in the relatively near future, whether because of Syria or something. And here we are. Isn't it also interesting that I could go on Fox News this morning and knowing just that a bomb blew up in London, yeah, it's jihadism. Do, do I... I'm not pretending like that's a great call. It's the most obvious thing in the world, right? But what does that tell us? There's 6 billion people in the world. A lot of non-Muslims in the world. What what does it say when a bomb goes off on a subway in one of the most cosmopolitan major cities on the planet? And we're like, yeah, well, that was a jihadist. That was somebody from the Muslim faith. I think that's what you'd call an indicator of a problem. I want to get into the rest of this I think fascinating interview, and it's really worth our time. I, I believe it is. Um, and then I will get, I see every line is lit. We, we will get to some calls. I want to hear from you too. Uh, later on, I've got a little more uh, history to do with you. And also, I'm going to do some uh, Facebook comments. We're going to read off some Facebook comments to get some audience, some digital uh, era interaction going here. And then we'll also uh, have a, a YouTube a YouTube commentator join. we got some fun stuff planned for later. But We're going to work through this jihadism analysis together, and we'll take some calls, and I will be right back. Buck, back with you now in the Freedom Hut. Lines are lit. Let's take some calls here. Uh, Josh in Pennsylvania on WWVA. Hey, Josh. Yeah. Yes, Josh. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling in. What's in your mind? I wanted to ask you, why do you think... I'll, I'll give you my opinion after you, I hear yours, but why do you think there is no terrorist attacks that we hear of anyhow in places like Beijing, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Dubai, even Moscow, anywhere in Russia? Well, uh, well, well, did you say Russia? There are a lot of terrorist attacks in Russia, um, and and jihadist terrorist attacks, big ones. Uh, but I'll get to that in a second if you want. Uh, the the other places you mentioned, though, China. Uh, I, I think I know what your point's going to be, and I'm not trying to negate your point. I just want to make sure that I'm speaking uh, factually about all this. Uh, China does have jihadist terror attacks, but they're minimal. They're very, very few, and they occur in uh, the western part of China where there is an ethnic minority group, a religious minority group there called the Uyghurs, who are Muslim Chinese, uh, and they, they are not happy with being a part of, of Beijing's whole situation. There have been some knife attacks in, in uh, train stations there, for example, by the, the Uyghurs. Um, I think I, I, I'm i not somebody... China is uh, a place that I haven't spent as much time studying as the Middle East, so I don't want to get too far into what's going on with the Uyghurs. But yeah, so you got Uyghurs in Western China, and then you have... Uh, you mentioned Japan. Yeah, very, look, Japan, the, the crime rate in... Forget about terrorism. The crime rate in Japan is so low that uh, the police are having to find things to do because they, they can't even find petty crimes to deal with. So they're finding like little violations. You know, they it's like, uh, you know, a rogue squirrel got loose in somebody's attic and they assigned five detectives to it. There have been people writing stories about this recently because crime in Japan is like practically non-existent. There was a terrorist incident some years ago. I think it was on the subway with a sarin, a sarin gas attack, actually, with uh, Um Shinriko, uh, which was a J- Japanese terrorist group. But, uh, that, the, you know, yeah, there's no jihadist terrorism in Japan because there there's basically no Islamic community in Japan, which is a precondition for being a, a jihadist, right? I mean, I'm not saying that all Muslims are jihadists, but all jihadists are Muslims. So there you go. Um, and so what's now I, I feel like you've got a response for me, though, Josh. What, what was that? 
well, basically that there's a very minimal amount of Muslims there, therefore minimal jihadists, and they don't accept the 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 refugees don't go there. They don't want them at any any of those places. They they limit their immigration. Yeah, I mean, J- Japan does limit their immigration. I think for across the board. I mean, it's very very hard to become a Japanese citizen if you're not Japanese. I don't know what their specific immigration laws are, but you know, we we like we we like Japan. Uh, we kind of give it a pass on the fact that it's a pretty culturally and i have i have not spent time there so i'm just basing it on friends of mine who are legitimate uh far east experts and and their thoughts on it but i've talked to them about it and it's it's a not a xenophobic place but it's not really a it's they want you to visit but they don't want you to stay there that's that's the they're happy for you to come and hang out in tokyo but like you're not going to live there the rest of your life and have your kids there that's kind of the way it works josh uh, shield simon thank you for calling in i mentioned russia uh, or rather, he mentioned Russia, and I, I, I know he was just rattling off countries, but Russia has gotten hit by Islamic terrorism and hit hard uh, many times. And in fact, after 9-11, there was a rapprochement between Putin and Bush because the uh, because the forces, uh, the, the powers that be in the Kremlin had dealt with it. There was the Moscow theater siege, which ended very tragically. A lot of casualties there. There was the Beslan school massacre, which is so horrific that I just, you generally want to stay, you know, it's not something you want to read about before you try and sleep. Um, a lot of suicide bombings, all kinds of problems in Russia. So, but they have a, there is an Islamic minority in Russia. The Caucasus states are, in some cases, Muslim states. So, Team Buck, thank you for being here with me. We're talking about the ideology of jihadism in the aftermath of a terrorist attack in London. Uh, not a lot of satisfying answers about what to do next, how we stop this, what we're supposed to be uh, thinking the next steps are in this war on terror, this war on uh, Islamic terrorism, uh, radical Islamic terrorism. And Part of this is just being able to really talk about what's happening. At some point in the future, I plan on doing some uh, some deep dives with you into just how, and I know I'm moving off the subject of Islam for a second, but I think that historical parallels are useful for illustrating the current moment, uh, as long as you're clear about, you know, this. No, nothing is exact, right? But the American left, Democrats, progressives, commies, Bernie Sanders voters, they... Although Bernie Sanders wasn't around at this time. Or or was he? How old is Bernie again? Uh, they He did go to the Soviet Union for his honeymoon. But they were making excuses for the Soviet Union for decades. They were finding ways to be favorably disposed towards communism. And before the real height of the Cold War, there were a lot of prominent Americans, connected, educated, wealthy Americans, who were seduced by the so-called workers' paradise of the Soviet Union. After the stock market crash in the U.S. and the Great Depression, it was a widespread belief that communism and the workers' paradise of the Soviet Union was, it was now inevitable that 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 would triumph. We think of the 20th century as capitalism, baby, commerce. Actually, there was a time when it looked like communism, in some circles at least, would win. And that communism was more ethical, that it was more moral, that it was better. And the American left, I'm going to talk about the Soviet Union, the American left intelligentsia worked very hard 
to cover up the crimes of the Soviet Union, most famously Walter Duranty, a reporter who went over there and pretended there was no famine in the Ukraine when there was. And there were others as well. Um, The God That Failed is one of my favorite works that addresses this issue. Uh, It's former communists writing essays. And it's a collection of really excellent writers writing essays about their time being brought into communism and then the realization that this is really an an evil cult as much as it was a political ideology. Uh, But the American left was complicit in that and they were trying to suppress the truth and they didn't want to have a discussion. Today, with Islam and terrorism, you have a similar effect at work. And when I'm trying to talk about the ideology that pushed the person in London to try and kill a bunch of a bunch of his fellow Brits, I'm you know assuming that he's born there, he's a citizen, but his fellow Brits, and we turn around and we're told, don't talk about why, don't talk about the the mentality, the why he did this, unless you're going to say it's because of poverty or oppression or some other such, uh, such complete nonsense. Back to this article about. What is not nonsense, which is that the ideology of Islam lends itself when you take a traditional, you could say fundamentalist, if you want, a traditional interpretation of Islam, there is an inherent hostility between Muslims and non-Muslims. He's saying it's just a fact. I'm sure a lot of you are like, yeah, it is. But this is a Muslim scholar with an enormous following in the largest Muslim country in the world. And he's saying it's just a fact. And you can tell these journalists are, or this one journalist interviewing him is, is concerned. Uh, he says, a Western, so let me just repeat what the last statement was. So what basic assumptions within traditional Islam are problematic? The response from the scholar is that the relationship between Muslims and the state, Muslims and non-Muslims, and the relationship to the legal system. And then he says, perhaps there were reasons for this during the Middle Ages when the tenets of Islamic orthodoxy were established, but in today's world, such a doctrine is unreasonable. To the extent that Muslims adhere to this view of Islam, it renders them incapable of living harmoniously and peacefully within the multicultural, multi-religious societies of the 21st century. What he's saying here is, look, this, the, the uh, Salafi interpretation, Salaf, and and this is a, a, a more accurate, I guess, more nuanced way of referring to what we would call around the 9-11 era Wahhabism, which is the Saudi interpretation of Islam that is named for Ibn Abdul Wahhab, who's an 18th century preacher on the Arabian Peninsula who made an allegiance with the House of Saud to defeat other tribes. He was sort of the ideology guy and the the House of Saud was the, the muscle. And they made an allegiance and they took over the peninsula. I mean, the, the, the Arabian Peninsula took over what is now Saudi Arabia. That's why they call it Saudi Arabia. But Wahhab, Ibn Abdul Wahhab, was the fundamentalist preacher. But he didn't come up with this interpretation of Islam. It existed before him. They don't like to be called Wahhab, or rather they say don't call it Wahhabism because that's almost idolatry. You know, you, you don't name it for the cleric. And so now they say Salafism. And I'm just, just, just so you know. So when your buddies are like, oh, you're Islamophobic, be like, yeah, tell me about Salafism. They're like, oh, I like, I like, you know, virgin olive oil dressing on my Salafism. I mean, they have no idea what the heck they're talking about. Right? So Salafism is traditional Islam. The word comes from Salaf, which are the forefathers in Arabic, the forefathers of Islam. And it is an interpretation that relies upon the life of the Prophet Muhammad and 
what are known after Muhammad as the Rashidun, the rightly guided caliphs, the the first leaders of the Islamic community, of the Ummah, which is their term for the, the whole community of Islamic believers, and the way they lived their lives in the 7th, 8th, ninth century. That's what Salafism is. You will notice that when you read, as I have, and spend a lot of time studying the communications and proclamations of jihadists, of Muslim extremist terrorists all over the world, they take a viewpoint of Islam that is similar, that is based in textualism, and that is based in the history of Islam as a religion that was, from its very origins, used as a justification for force. From day, from the beginning. right? Go back to the life of the Prophet Muhammad himself. Okay, so... With all of that established, we're talking now about Salafism, and then people will say, well, there's an interpretation, and maybe, I, I apologize if I'm getting too far down the rabbit hole, but I think this is worth, I, th- I do think this is worthwhile. If you want someone to go, if you want them to trot out, you know, a, a general who retired in like 95 and who has never even been to a Muslim country, you can turn on any number of TV stations, and some guy, well, we're gonna like, you know, we've we got to just defeat Islam. You know, we just got to defeat them. And look, you know, any, anyone who served respect their service, but not everybody knows what they're talking about with the Muslim world, right? So if you want to have a discussion about what's going on now, I think this is important. I think understanding the basis and the ideology matters. Um, and if you disagree, that's why you can call in or we've got Facebook and, uh, you know, we have any number of ways for you to try to help guide this show. Because this I, I'm here. I'm here and ready to serve all of you. So Salafism is a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. And when you look at where Salafism comes from, it is often exported as though it's a product, although it's an ideology from Saudi Arabia. We'll get back into that in a moment. But in this interview with this Indonesian cleric published in Time magazine that I've been telling you about, who has a following, uh, who's the head of an organization of 50 million Muslims in Indonesia. Indonesia is also a country that is often pointed to by defenders of Islam as look at how it works in local traditions and there's sort of a multi-ethnic mosaic going on, a multi... Yes and no. True, but also true, but changing, which if I have time, I'll get to. I know I said I would talk to you about North Korea, but that might get... I don't know. We're going to have North Korea or the Berkeley's free speech stuff. I'm not sure which one will drop on the cutting room floor for today. There's always more time. That's why you can hang out with me next week whenever you want. Uh, but this Indonesian cleric says the following, or in response to this question, says the following. A Western politician would likely be accused of racism for saying what you just said. This is about lack of harmony between Muslims and non-Muslims who believe in the traditional interpretation of Islam. The response is uh, from this cleric is as follows, quote, I'm not saying that Islam is the only factor causing Muslim minorities in the West to lead a segregated existence, often isolated from society as a whole. There may be other factors on the part of the host nation, such as racism, which exists everywhere in the world. But traditional Islam, which fosters an attitude of segregation and enmity towards non-Muslims, is an important factor. I... This guy's saying Islam, you know, this, this you got to talk about it. You got to factor it in. It's and it's the traditional interpretation. It's not a new radicalization that has just they've just come up with in the 20th century. We had a caller before rightly talking about the Barbary Wars. The first foreign U.S. war was against Muslim states, the Barbary states, what is now North Africa, 
And we had to fight that war because they were, through no provocations, this is in the, I mean, the U.S. had no colonies, the U.S. had no quarrel, and stated as much to the Bay of Algiers, to the leaders of these North African states, the Barbary, the so-called Barbary states. And they said, yeah, but you're not Muslims. So we have a holy right. In fact, we have a an obligation to enslave you and plunder you and do whatever we want because you're not Muslims. That was all. That was it. And so we had to commission a navy and we had to go over there. And, you know, if, if those of you who live in uh, one of the many decatur cities or towns in this country uh, what is it, decatur illinois or iowa i forget but the history of stephen decatur fascinating one of our first special operations raids uh fighting in the barbary wars this is also lost to history people don't talk about it but we had to go over there to stop them that's why we were there to that we went to the shores of tripoli like from the marine him to the shores of Tripoli because of radical Islam. And I think it's important that the American people remember that now. We did, we had no quarrel with them. They had a quarrel with us, and it was religiously based. It was. Doesn't mean that every Muslim in North Africa was a bad guy or a gal. But that was the ideology, and that was the problem. And this is why, when we try to talk about this now, I just find it uh, so frustrating because there are people that would much rather engage in virtue signaling and talk about how they have, you know, all my, my peaceful Muslim friends are so great and everything. I've got peaceful Muslim friends. That's not the point. The point is not that any one individual who falls within a vast religious tradition is bad. The point is not that a, a religious tradition that is vast is itself bad. Is that from within that tradition, there are some problems. Problems that need to be addressed. Problems that the first step in addressing, because it's ideological, is speaking openly about them. So, uh, for me, this is more valuable than uh, just running around saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to crush them. And, like, I, I think that Trump's saying that they're losers. I, I actually, I, I like the, uh, jihadists should be mocked. Jihadists should be ridiculed. G- we should... Make sure that we do everything in our power to show that their beliefs are not just heinous and evil, but also just pathetic and dumb and disconnected from the world and end in terrible outcomes for those who who subscribe to them. I think mockery of jihadist belief is a great thing. It should be done much more, much more openly. We, we tend to because they hold themselves up as as being so vicious and, and they are vicious, but that we, we seek we see them as this. Uh, there's this devoted and, and, you know, enemy with great zeal. And yeah, they're also a bunch of idiots and clowns and they're cowards. We should we should speak about that, too. So I actually I, as I know that Trump got some criticism from Theresa May for this. I actually like that. He, I like that. He calls them losers. I like that. He calls them out for being scum. I, I don't want to sit around and pretend like these are holy warriors that are coming to our doorstep. And what will we do to you know? No, no, no. They're losers. We should. We got to take them out. But they are losers. Um, I, I think I was going to talk to you about what's going on in Indonesia and the similarities between Islamization in Indonesia and Nigeria and how it starts off with Sharia in a few provinces and in a few places. And I don't know. And I might. I, I don't. I know. Some of you are kind of like Buck. You know what? Why don't we talk a little bit about Berkeley and Antifa? Why don't you? 
We already with Salaf and Wahab, and I know there's a lot. I know it's been a lot today, but this is what I all I all I do is sit around thinking about what I can tell you on the show to make this as worthwhile for all of you as humanly possible. So this is what happens. You know, it's deep. It's like deep dive. We're going we're going so deep that you know Joe in Wyoming listening on the Blaze Radio. What's up, Joe? Joe, hello, Bueller. Bueller, Bueller, uh, Barry in Mississippi on WBUV. Hey, Barry. Hey, Zach. What's up? I'm all right, man. How are you? Great, great. Um, but my realistic solution is to convert them all to Christianity. But that being said, the answer that wait—that's your realistic or unrealistic? I'm assuming you mean your unrealistic. Well, I say realistic in that in that uh, it's righteous, you know. Uh, as opposed to the real answer of don't let any in the country. Because uh, as we can prove, you don't let them in, you don't have terrorism. Uh, but everybody would say, oh, but what about religious freedom? Or what about the millions of peaceful Muslims? And you, and you just brought up a core of Islam is really world conquest. Uh, it, it's in the Quran. And let me point out the book, you probably read it, uh, Robert Spencer, The Truth About Islam. Yep, I know that uh, book. It's all it's all sourced from ancient Islamic texts. So he's not making it up. It's not opinion. He's just telling you what they really say in their text. So anyway, uh, he brings up the, the, the world conquest is what they're all about, and they're doing it in a peaceful way more than they're doing it in a violent way. I'm sure you've heard the term civilization jihad. Uh, if we didn't have limits on immigration— well, sure enough, they'd send 10 million over here and they'd conquer our country just through population. Right now, they're doing it just as fast as they can get people in here. It's just slow because it takes a while uh, because oh. we have limits. We're covering covering a lot of covering a lot of territory there. Uh, well, look, there's there's a um, the and, th- and I, I thank I thank you for calling in, Barry. Uh, there are uh, it's a small it's a small minority within uh, the Islamic faith that takes this uh, Salafi view. I'm not even talking about terrorists. I'm just talking about Salafi, meaning uh, the fundamentalist view within Islam. But uh, they, because because it's so big, you're talking about about 1.6, 1.7 billion people. 1%, 5%, 10%, that's a lot of people. And going back to our uh, analogy of the Russian Revolution, which led to the communist takeover of Russia and the Soviet Union and and the uh, not just the not just condemning people to a couple of generations of uh, servitude and slavery behind the Iron Curtain, but also the possibility of a nuclear war between the two powers at the time, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It, it was a small it was a small minority that uh, was. Running around, the, the Bolsheviks were, were not winning any elections when they got started. I can tell you that. They were not. And people now forget that there was the Mensheviks, there were these other groups, other Marxist outfits running around. There was infighting with them. And, you know, Stalin hated Trotsky. And I think Trotsky ended up with an ice uh, ice axe in the back of his head in Mexico City and you know because he was a heretic and, you know, all that stuff. But the point here is that a small but dedicated, hardline, ideological minority is able to change the world. And this is the philosophy that many of these jihadists have. Forget about the 
the tenets of Islam and traditional. They're just saying that we're the true believers. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that we're five percent, one percent. It doesn't whatever the percentage. No one. First of all, no one knows. So whenever it's, oh, don't say it's five percent. It's okay. Well, you know, says who? Says who? What polls? Polls? What polls? You know, as long as we're talking about this in in generalities, I'm just saying it's going to be a it's a big enough group that it's a problem, obviously, right? It's a big enough group that it's an issue. Um, if you want me to talk about the uh, Islamization of Indonesia on a similar timeline to what happened in Nigeria, which led to a lot of violence there, let me know because I think I, I think I've pulled myself back from like the weeds on that one a bit. But maybe another time, I'll I'll get into that. Uh, I, I you know let's talk Berkeley next. North Korea, they fired a missile. Kim Jong Un's a jerk. It's not going to stop. It's really scary. For now, the end. I mean, there's not much else to say other than, you know, we've got them boxed in, but they're getting better missiles and they're getting a little crazier with them. But nothing's going to change tomorrow, really. There you had some protesters at the, uh, the Ben Shapiro speech last night, which... <sighs> went off. It was fine. He, ben, ben was able to speak and you know, got a, a lot of... Everyone's like, oh gosh, this big speech is going to happen and there's going to be all this craziness. I mean, there was some there was some stuff going on. Um, and I saw the the, uh, the price tag for this was $600,000, which certainly seems, certainly seems like uh, there's going to be a, a barrier to entry for some conservatives going forward here. Yeah, because who's going to want to pay that kind of money? What municipality is going to want to pay that kind of money? And what's funny, of course, is, or not really funny, but ironic, is that it's almost like the conservative is the one that gets the blame from the police force in Berkeley or, you know, so you want to show up and speak. Other people are threatening violence and now you're the problem, right? It kind of reminds me of the Danish cartoons where people, you, you were either on one of two sides there. It was the claim that violence in response to a cartoon of Muhammad was a completely unacceptable, immoral, and grotesque response. And there were others who were like, well, why do those Danish guys have to, like, you know, why do they have to mess things up with being all provocative, you know? So, yeah, conservatives talking about things that we like to talk about is now considered a provocation enough that it will uh, require major security measures and, and they'll have to be put in place to make him to make people safe um so i actually haven't had a chance yet to watch ben's speech i'll probably uh, check it out uh, this weekend if i have the time um but the real thing was that the, there were all these protests around it it costs all this money but they hold up these signs that say things that i've seen before like become ungovernable this is a sign that they used to have up during the days of occupy wall street back in 2011 six years ago now they would hold up signs that said, this is back in 2011, Occupy Wall Street, the progressive protest movement du jour of that time. They would hold up signs that say, make war on the state. Hmm? Huh? How are they going to do that? You know, capitalism is terrible. Let me tweet that out on my iPhone. I mean, these are the kinds of things that they were doing and saying, and it hasn't changed at all. But now they're doing this all in the era of Trump. I should note that... All this anti-fascist stuff is looking particularly...
particularly pathetic right now because so, so the guy that just cut a deal with the opposition that's more uh, on the budget I'm talking about now, not on DACA, but that's more of a bipartisan act than anything President Obama accomplished legislatively uh, in terms of what he was pushing for and what he would agree to sign in his eight years as president. That guy, Trump, Trump's a fascist? Where's the fascist impulse here? What, what Trump, who says that, you know, the DACA people are good people and we should find a way to keep... The, he's a fascist? Really? I mean, this was this has always been preposterous and, and irresponsible, but now it's also just... It's it's pathetic, too. So this is the... The, the fascist is the guy with the, as I've mentioned before, the Jewish son-in-law and the uh, Jewish daughter who are among the most powerful and important advisors in the U.S. government. He, he's a fascist and a white supremacist, they say. A white supremacist. In, in fact, I mentioned this yesterday, but they were holding up signs about Ben Shapiro's white supremacy. What I had said days before, if I may say so now, is absolutely right. They are using white supremacy now as a stand-in for anything racist because white supremacy sounds really, really bad because it is really, really bad. But you start to make it seem less bad when you call, uh, you know, the, the lack of, of diversity in Hollywood movie casting white supremacy. You know, m- maybe there there should be a, a look at, you know, I, I, actually, I looked at the analysis. You, you know what they when they had the whole Oscars, there's not, an, you know, the Oscar. I think Oscars so white was what they were was what it was called at the time. That was the hashtag, right? Oscars so white. Um Ty and Amy are shaking their heads. Yes. Okay, good. They're, they keep me in touch with the pop culture here. But Oscar so White was the hashtag. And then they did an analysis of percentage of the population and then uh, which ethnic groups are represented and not represented in Hollywood. And sure enough, African-Americans were actually pretty much represented, represented in, uh, in keeping with the percentage of the U.S. population. You know who was not? Asian-Americans, which I thought was interesting. Asian-Americans dramatically underrepresented in Hollywood movies as a function of their, again, based on the census, their percentage of the population. And But, white, but you know, white supremacy, man, right? It's all white supremacy. And I know you could say, well, Buck, I mean, the problem is that there are too many, you know, the left would say there's too many white people. But it just... The point here is the white supremacy... Uh, white supremacy... Sorry, it's tough when you, when you say it enough, you start to stumble... Uh, is a term that should be used and reserved for those who truly believe that white skin makes them better than other people, that other people are less than them because of their white skin. It shouldn't be, well, There's this is a complex sociological issue that has many different facets, and there's a an, an entirely reasonable discussion to be had about how this is playing out day in and day out. Yeah, your side is white supremacy. So I was with Shapiro. And he pointed out, he said, look at, look at the yarmulke on my head. I'm a, I'm a white supremacist. I'm a member of the KKK, as I told you. KKK targeted in the name, this is where the, the, where the Ks are, Catholics, which is, I should note, completely left out of the uh, discussion, uh, Jewish Americans, and African Americans. Right? Those were, those were the, the, the primary targets of, of, the, uh, of the Klan. Now, African-Americans were by far the, the biggest single target of the Klan, but they, they members of the Klan did not like uh, Jews and did not like Catholics. Right? That's that's long. Uh, that's been long established. So uh, the white supremacy term is is used 
just as a means of trying to scare people into not holding the positions that they do. Because I think that racism has run out of steam as an accusation. It's still, they use, you know, it's used on the left all the time. They're always calling everybody racist. But now when they say, oh, you know, that's racist, it's, it's turned somewhat into self-mockery. In the accusations of racism about, you know, everything is racist. Everyone is racist. There's racism everywhere. People have become numb to it. They're, they're tired of it. White supremacy, that, that sounds urgent. We, we have to address that right away. Uh, so the the linguistic changes are reflective of political and socio uh, sociological changes that are happening in the country, and that's why you're hearing this term much more. But in, as a means of opposing Trump, I mean, I just think it's it's so weak, so flimsy. There are a lot of reasons that I could come up with that people on the left and on the right could criticize and have real problems with Trump. White supremacy should not be one of them. But that's me, Joe in Wyoming. Welcome to Freedom Hut, sir. What's on your mind? Shields high, Buck. Shields high. So I wonder what uh, Ben Affleck would have to say about all the quotes from the Indonesian imam. Oh, yeah, you're referring to that exchange he had on Bill Maher where Ben Affleck, who fancies himself something of a, an amateur scholar of uh, Islamic studies, I think he took like a, a semester of Arabic at, uh, I don't know, whatever liberal arts college he went to, and right. that's about it, right? Um, he went up against, uh, I'm forgetting, Sam, Sam Harris on this issue, Sam on Harris, the Bill Maher right. show, which Bill Maher <laughs> show still hasn't called me, by the way. Still still waiting for that call, but go ahead. Uh, so I, I think pretty soon we can be expecting to see uh, um, some headlines in, the, in London newspapers saying authorities fear is anti-Islamic backlash after next week's terrorist attack i think that'll be coming in uh down the pipeline pretty soon you know you you talked a little bit about uh desensitization and i think that there's a few different ways that that can happen two of which are you know we got to kind of get paralyzed into uh paralyzed into an action but i think what's more likely to happen is that uh it will become so commonplace that it's just like a purse getting snatched. And at that point, when that happens, we will have, we may or may not have lost the will to fight. We'll, have to, we'll have to see, Joe. I've actually got to run. I appreciate you calling in, my friend from Wyoming, but I've got to run into a break here in just a moment because we've got a guest that will be joining us, uh, a, a YouTuber. I think that's what the that's what the kids say, right? YouTuber, YouTuber joining about uh, her perspective on Red Pill Black, which is her channel, and then uh, a little more Malta. For those of you who like the history deep dive, for those of you who don't, just like one segment, and then we'll get into uh, that's coming up. I got to finish it off. I got to tell you what happens with the siege, and then we will talk about some Facebook stuff and uh, some Team Buck stuff. So we'll be right back. White supremacy and the KKK. Really, that's what you guys want me to be concerned with this week? Do I look like an idiot? I mean, there are, what, 6,000 Klansmen left in our nation. You want me to actually process that as a legitimate fear every day when I wake up? That's Candace Owens. She is a YouTube sensation whose conservative videos are garnering hundreds of thousands of views. Her YouTube channel, Red Pill Black, is calling on liberals who are sick of taking the alt-left to take the red pill. The term taking the red pill comes from the movie The Matrix, where Morpheus, the resistance leader, uh, offers Neo, the movie's hero, a choice. He can take the blue pill and remain in the repressive artificial world known as The Matrix, 
where you wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe, or he can take the red pill and tumble down the rabbit hole where he will come to realize that everything about his life was a lie. All right, we got the backstory there. Candace, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to call in today. Yeah, tell me about this uh, YouTube channel, what you do, what you talk about, how you came up with the, uh, or why you decided on the name. Give me everything. I mean, I woke up one day and everything on television was just dreadfully boring and unfunny and redundant and at the expense of conservatives. It was kind of just becoming everything on TV bullies conservatives and conservative values. So I thought, I think it's time for an antidote to that. People are bored. And I created Red Pill Black. Um, You mentioned, obviously, the background of the name being Red Pilled. And um, my highest hope is to wake up people in the African-American community who I think are being used the most by this sort of alt-left narrative. And, um, yeah, my channel was born. (laughs) Yeah, I actually referenced the red pill, blue pill, Morpheus decision. I love the movie The Matrix, referenced it years ago. But you're you're aware, I'm sure, that now this is often used by the alt-right as a term, or at least the media says it's used by the alt-right, that they're red-pilling people. Yeah, no, they say that because they want people to stay away from anybody that uses the term red pill. It's, it's, that did not derive or was not hijacked by the alt-right whatsoever. Yeah, I, I said it on my radio show literally four or five years. I mean, I only said it once, but so yeah, this has been out there. I mean, The Matrix came out in like 2000, phenomenal movie. Yeah. But they do say this now. They also call yeah. everybody a white supremacist, though. You're clearly onto that. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'm white supremacist supremacist proof just because I'm African-American. So I have not been called that um, just yet, but um, I'm sure it will come soon. But yeah, they call everyone. Everything, everything's racist. If you disagree with them, you're racist. If you think differently, you're a white supremacist. I mean, it's boring at this point. And what are some of the main things? I mean, some of the, the audience response that you've gotten has been really big, I know, on YouTube. And this is considered a yeah. space. May I ask, are, are you a millennial? I mean, I don't want to ask a lady her yeah, age on I air, am. but... <laughs> you may, don't worry. Um, I am a millennial. And um, I think the number one response that I've seen is just, they keep using the adjective refreshing. You know, it's like a breath of fresh air. It's like, you know, a cold sip of water. And it's just because, again, the environment on TV has become so stale and it's just not funny anymore. What are some of the topics that you tackle or, or some of the angles you take on them that you feel like are, you use the term, or you said people use the term refreshing uh, in response to your content and your YouTube channel? And we're speaking, everybody, to Candace Owens. You can check out her, well, check out her YouTube channel. Uh, but what are some of the things that you've done that you're particularly proud of or that you think are uh, good exemplars of what you're trying to accomplish with Red Pill Black? You know, I think I'm most proud of um, more of the satirical skits. I do do a few skits. I did one entitled Mom, Dad, I'm a Conservative. And I just think that the best way to kind of make a point is through humor and hyperbole. And I, I pretty much sat down two of my parents. They're both played by me and broke it to them that I was conservative, similar, you know, to what you would imagine in the 80s, having to sit down your parents and tell them that you're gay. And it was sort of this um, cheeky satire, basically saying that today, it's for some reason much, conservatives are the people that have to be in the closet. You know, conservatives are the people that get these crazy reactions and they say that they think a little more conservatively. Like being gay is like nothing now, you know, no one cares. (laughs) So 
Um, they're they're the new black sheep. So I, I, I definitely like doing skits. I see that one of the points that you made on, on your videos had to do with the, the size of the actual KKK versus the, the size of the KKK in our discourse, courtesy of the uh, liberal left wing media. I mean, I, I assume that as an African-American female, uh, an African-American millennial female, as we have established as well, uh, that you probably get a lot of heat for taking on the narrative that they're exaggerating, that the media exaggerates the size of the KKK, white supremacy, and neo-Nazis. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's quite literally, watching CNN to me is like laugh out loud funny. I mean, they're freaking out every single day about things that just you don't see every day. The CNN wouldn't have to tell you if the KKK was a real threat. We'd be living that way in fear. That's the way my grandfather grew up. And I think that that's what, for me, is the most annoying point, is that they sort of take away from the history, this very meaningful history, right, that people who actually did survive civil rights and actually did live through white supremacy, people that actually did survive the Nazis, and they just flail around these terms. Um, So, yeah, I I catch a little bit of heat, but I I expected it, which is why I entitled my blog series The Myth of the Coon. You expect people are going to call you a coon and call you a traitor. Um, But, you know, I've taken that word back. I I have no shame in being called a coon because it it lets you know that you're onto something. You know, you're in good company. They call Dr. Ben Carson a coon. Um, Every educated African-American that sort of makes it out of this cycle of media abuse is called a coon. So I'm, I'm in good company. And do you feel like uh, YouTube, you know, I'm here talking to you on radio and yes, we have we have a digital presence, but we are a terrestrial radio show. We've got over 100 affiliates across the country airing the show. Uh, Radio was essential for the counter revolution, if you will, to the media's left wing bias. Radio has been the place where because people can choose with their dial, um, they've been able to get alternative viewpoints that they weren't getting from the mainstream media is is youtube a place for that now or i know youtube is owned by google and there's concerns about you know how they're allowing monetization and not allowing monetization i'm worried that the progressives of silicon valley are going to try to prevent youtube and other digital outlets from becoming for conservatives what radio has been Right. And that that's what they do. They try to cut off the funding. They figure if you can't fund yourself, you have to come up with a new hobby other than um, videos. And it's true. YouTube is cracking down on conservative voices. Um, and I'm worried about it. But I also I feel in my heart that this movement has grown has, has grown so strong. And I feel that every single day in the comments, I, you know, I launched launched a Patreon account. So people can fund me there. If that gets shut down, I'll go somewhere else. Um, it just takes a little bit of resilience. It's definitely going to be an uphill battle, which I think we understood if, if we just watched what Trump went through just to become the president of the United States. Um, then you have to understand that this is kind of the cards that were dealt. But I feel, like I said, in my bones that the underground movement is is growing. Um, and we've just got to support each other and keep at it. All right. Candace Owen, she is a YouTube sensation. Go check it out. Uh, how, how can people listening, if they're not used, I mean, I'm sure they can type in Candace Owen into YouTube, but is there a specific URL? Uh, I don't know if the URL is on YouTube. They can just look up Red Pill Black as three separate words. And I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter um, at Red Pill Black. I'm, I'm everywhere. So <laughs> she is. She is everywhere. And she is passing out nowhere. the Red Pill. Candice, thank you so much for joining. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right, team. I'm going to come back in and talk to you a little more about the siege of Malta. And then I'll give some time to Facebook messages, and uh, we're going to call that Team Buck Speaks. 
I, I kind of like that name. We might come up with a cooler name. But we're almost through the Siege of Malta. That'll be a segment coming up next. Then we'll talk about a little Facebook action, tell you some stories. We're going we're gonna to lighten it up, have some fun in the third hour after we get past scimitars, pikes, cutting off heads, and uh, a brutal holy war. Um, so first that, and then fun. We'll be right back. The Siege of Malta, Part 4. I wanted to continue with our deep dive into what happened in 1565, ending in this month, September, in fact, ending this week in 1565, a siege on the Mediterranean island of Malta that, had it been successful, would have allowed the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate of the time, and the jihadist expansionism that it represented to strike into the heart of Europe itself and would have changed with it world history. When we last left the battle, we had the siege of Fort Elmo underway within the greater siege of Malta. In the Grand Harbor, there were a number of fortifications. Those fortifications included St. Michael's on Sanglea, the Fort of St. Angelo on Burgu. Those are two peninsulas that stick out into the Grand Harbor of Malta. And then at the base of Mount Skibaris, which is currently the site of the capital of Malta, Valletta, but at the base of Mount Skibaris was Fort St. Elmo. You had 40,000 or so Turkish troops, including the feared Janissary Corps and also Spahis, the Turkish elite cavalry, along with an incredible array of heavy artillery, mortars, and basilisks so named for the ancient dragon that fired incredibly heavy stone shot as a form of battering down fortifications. The Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent had broken down command between Piali Pasha as the Supreme Naval Commander and Mustafa Pasha as the Supreme Land Forces Commander for the Ottoman Turks, for the forces of Islam in this case. And then leading the defense of the island of Malta, you had Jean Parisot de Valette, about 500 of his Knights of St. John along with them, Knights Hospitaller, and then a corps of a few thousand European mercenaries and religious soldiers of fortune and the Maltese inhabitants and the levy of soldiers from them as well. They were completely surrounded and had, by May of 1565, set down for a protracted siege. The princes, dukes, and kings, the assorted royalty of Christendom at the time, had said that they would come to the aid of the Knights Hospitaller on the island of Malta, but Valette knew that there would be inaction among those nobles, as each would assume that the other would be the one to send reinforcements, and no one wanted to send their troops into a disastrous situation. So after the initial unopposed landing force of Ottoman troops seized control of the island of Malta, which is part of two islands, really, a small archipelago, including the island of Gozo to the north, and then you have the Straits of Malta, which separates it from Sicily, and then Sicily, of course, nearby to the southern tip of the boot of Italy. The Ottomans were quickly able to entrench themselves around the fortifications of the Knights of St. John, and when I last left you, we were discussing the Siege of St. Elmo. This was a pivotal moment in this incredibly important battle that I'm willing to bet very few, if any of you were taught in history class, I had to read about it 
on my own. But the decision to besiege St. Elmo instead of going for the main fortifications that the Knights of St. John had set up around the Grand Harbor of Malta meant that the Ottomans were, in effect, going for a limb of the resistance instead of the throat right away. And that limb, Fort St. Elmo, was much hardier than any of them had anticipated. As an aside, it's worth noting that St. Elmo is the Italian name for St. Erasmus of Formia, and St. Elmo, or St. Erasmus, was the patron saint of, that's right, you guessed it, sailors and navigators. So for an island like Malta, which was a shipping port with some people living on it, naming one of your primary fortifications after that patron saint certainly seemed to make a whole deal of sense. And also, those of you who have an interest in naval navigation uh, in centuries past and present may be familiar with St. Elmo's Fire. No, I'm not referring to 80s teen heartthrob movie with Emilio Estevez in it. I'm talking about the phenomenon whereby electric fields in the air can create a bluish tinge around objects on ships at sea with an effect that gives it something of a neon glow in low-light conditions. That's St. Elmo's fire. But the fire at Fort St. Elmo from the Ottoman Turks' cannons and various sharpshooters was withering. It was only because of the impressive fortifications and preparations by Valette and his Knights of St. John that they were able to continue what was a hopelessly outnumbered resistance at this one small fort. So let's discuss the fortification for a moment to get an understanding of just what was going on here. As written by Ernley Bradford in his excellent historical work, The Great Siege, quote, Mustafa's engineers and officers were sent forward to reconnoiter their position and report on it. It is a star fort, they said. There are four main salients and the front which we have to storm is broken into a bastioned form. The cavalier, which rises to seaward, is separated by a ditch. There is also a small ravelin. Both these outworks are connected to the main fort, the one by a drawbridge and the other by a fixed bridge. It was a classic and old-fashioned type of fort, and it seemed likely to present few difficulties to the sappers, miners, and siege artillery of the Turkish army. The greatest difficulty that confronted them, they reported, was the nature of the terrain. Mount Skibaris was a bleak bone of rock, affording no shelter or cover, nor even that matter any earth in which the troops might entrench. Now that's particularly noteworthy because the Turks had been mastering siege warfare for centuries and had been successful particularly in using engineers and sappers, those who will dig tunnels under the fortifications themselves and then usually light a fire or they could use gunpowder and cave in the wall, which would in turn, because it would take the land above it with it, uh, bring down the fortification. So this was an ancient medieval tactic, but the Turks brought to it gunpowder and greater technical know-how. Speaking of Turkish artillery, the weight of Turkish artillery, as written by Bradford, at this period of history, quote, far exceeded that of the Christian. The sultan's artillerymen and engineers in 40 years of land campaigns throughout Europe and the East had brought bombardment to a fine art. They had learned in siege upon siege the effects of different weapons and the techniques to be applied against varying fortresses. Two 60-pound culverns, 10 80-pounders, and an enormous basilisk firing solid shot 
weighing 160 pounds, were brought up for the attack on St. Elmo. With such heavy weapons, the Turkish fire was slower than the Christian, but applied at short ranges, the battering power of this heavy iron and stone shot was enormous, end quote. So the Turks were bringing everything they had to bear on this one fort, which had no more than hundreds, perhaps in the mid to high hundreds of defenders in it. But those defenders had decided early on that they would die in place. And because it was across the Grand Harbor from the main fortifications on Birgu and Senglea, they were able, with the cover of darkness, to send limited reinforcements over the course of this siege within a siege of Fort St. Elmo. The Turks thought this would take days. It took weeks and took them deep into the summer. All the while, there was the fear in the Turkish minds and the hope in the Christian minds that there would be reinforcements coming. In fact, the Viceroy of Sicily had promised that that help was just a matter of weeks away. But Valette, the leader of the Knights of St. John, knew that he couldn't count on these promises. From a noble French family himself, he had quite an understanding of the perfidious nature of European nobility, always quick to claim they would defend Christendom when called upon, but much more concerned about their own domains, their treasuries, and their necks. The bombardment started around the 27th of May, and it went on for weeks. While the fort looked like a pile of rubble within days, the Knights of St. John and their mercenary and Maltese comrades-in-arms held out no matter what. And with the reinforcements they received from across the harbor at night, they were able to stretch this siege within a siege until the end of June. It wasn't until the 23rd of June, after what seemed like an endless uh, pummeling by the Turkish artillery, that the fort finally fell. But one important note along the way, this part of the Turkish campaign to take Malta also saw the arrival of of Dragut Reis, also known as Torgud. He was among the most famous pirates of the entire history of the Mediterranean. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of the seas that he operated in, and he was a feared corsair who had been not just a thorn in the side, but a boogeyman, a, a nightmare story told to Christian children because of his habit of raiding the different Christian settlements and cities along the Mediterranean basin to grab slaves, slaves for the galleys of the ships and slaves for, yes, the harems and rock quarries of the sultan's domains. Dragut was also a scion of the perhaps more famous, although some historians dispute whether that was uh, should be considered to be the case, given how much more skilled Dragut was on the sea and in warfare, but Barbarossa was the mentor of Dragut, and Dragut was his successor once the famed pirate Barbarossa died. But, the, but Dragut knew Malta well. In fact, he had engaged in hostilities against the island, seizing slaves during previous seasons. And I should note that the seasonality of warfare at this time, especially on the high seas, was a major part of what was possible during a campaign. These ships, these galleys, these oared, rowed warships were not particularly sturdy in 
rough seas. And so once the winter storms came along, it became too dangerous to operate them on the Mediterranean. So you really only had the summer and into fall to complete this campaign in Malta. So time mattered for that reason. And time mattered because the viceroy of Sicily, Don Garcia, had promised and it was known that he was nearby and could have deployed thousands and thousands of troops as a relief force on Malta. So for weeks, Stretching from May into the end of June, the fort at St. Elmo held out. And then, with one great charge on June 23rd, the Turks, with the Janissary Corps assisting them, were able to take this first fortification at tremendous cost. It is estimated that five to 6,000 uh, Turkish dead resulted from taking this one fortification on the uh, peninsula beneath Mount Skibaris. And in the process, Dragut himself was mortally wounded. It was Dragut who understood the lines of fire and the necessary preparations and counter-fortifications that had to be put in place to take St. Elmo. When he was lost, all military command passed to the bickering, squabbling, arrogant Pasha Piala and Pasha Mustafa. So... They were furious when they finally took the fort and they took that rage out on the defenders. Here is how Bradford writes about the fall of St. Elmo. Quote, for three days, it had been completely cut off from all outside help. It had held out for 31 days of, continu of continuous siege and its defense was to prove, in retrospect, the keystone of the whole campaign. This small fort, which logically should have been stormed or forced to surrender within a week, was a disaster for the Turkish army. Accounts vary as to the Turkish losses during, losses during the siege of St. Elmo, but an average of the figures, commentators, and historians puts the number at about 8,000. This was nearly a quarter of the force that had embarked from Constantinople. The defenders lost about 1,500 men, a ratio of nearly one Christian dead for every six Muslims. The majority of those killed were either Spanish, Maltese, or other foreign troops. 120 knights and servants-at-arms were lost, the highest number, 31, from Italy. The rest were almost equally divided between Aragon, Auvergne, France, and Provence. The German Lang lost five of its members. Those were all knights of St. John. But it was the fall of St. Elmo that led to the most historically well-known incident of the entire siege, one which made it clear that this was a fight to the death for both sides and that for the defenders inside the fortifications on Malta, they would die in place rather than surrender. Victory or death became their battle cry. Here is how Bradford writes about the events that followed. Mustafa's determination to take no prisoners is understandable. He was a man who believed that the enemy may often be cowed by offensive acts of cruelty. He ordered the bodies of the knights to be set apart from those of the common soldiers. He then had the principal knights identified. The heads were struck from the bodies. They were fixed on stakes overlooking the Grand Harbor and were turned to face the fortress of St. Angelo. Other bodies were then decapitated and the headless trunks were nailed to crossbeams of wood in mockery of the crucifixion. A number of these headless trunks were launched onto the waters of Grand Harbor the night St. Elmo fell. End quote. So here we have the Turkish 
supreme commander ordering the decapitation of bodies, the mockery of the crucifixion of Jesus, and floating bodies on crosses after decapitated across the Grand Harbor to send a message to the remaining Christian defenders. The Grand Master of the Knights of St. John, Lavalette, decided to respond with a message of his own. Quote, he came down to the shore with his Latin secretary, Sir Oliver Starkey, and the other members of the council. Only two of the bodies could be identified. Each was recognized by his own brothers who were among the defenders of St. Angelo. Vallette, who had realized from the outset that the siege of Malta was a guerre à outrance, or a war of extremes, did not hesitate. He would impress upon his followers, as well as the Turks, that there could be no question of honorable surrender. He gave orders for all Turkish prisoners to be executed. Their heads were struck off their bodies, and the bodies were thrown in the sea. While Mustafa's army was collecting the captured cannon in St. Elmo and making them ready for dispatch to Constantinople as trophies of war, they were disturbed by the boom of cannon. The large guns on the cavalier of Fort St. Angelo was firing at them. They were firing the heads of the Turkish prisoners at them. This one exchange following the fall of Fort St. Elmo became emblematic for the entire siege of Malta, as it were. It let both sides know that this would be a fight until the end, that there would be no quarter and no mercy, and the stakes, in many ways, the survival and future of the Christian world itself, were made clear to all going to take a quick break your team will be right back welcome back team i'm not going to get into our closeout our finale of the siege of malta series here on the show just yet take we can take a moment a breather after the heads of the captured ottoman soldiers were fired out of cannons once Villette had ordered their execution some pretty intense stuff of course before that the bodies of christian captives uh, put on crosses and floated across the harbor uh, it's it's a dream of mine one day to get to Malta. I, I got messages from some of you that you had already been there, and and I am uh, I am jealous. Uh, I also got some messages asking for cross and cross versus crescent reading material for historical battles. Uh, the Great Siege by Ernley Bradford is the uh, book that I would recommend on the Siege of Malta. It's a really great book you can get on Amazon. And then there are a whole bunch of others out there that are easy to get and I highly recommend. Empire of the Seas by Roger Crowley is a great book. That's dealing with the Battle of Lepanto, which is 1571. Highly, highly recommend. Uh, There's also a book, The Galleys of Lepanto, which I have sitting next to my desk at home, as well as uh, Victory of the West, The Great Christian-Muslim Clash at the Battle of Lepanto by Niccolo Caponi. These are all good books. The Crowley one, I think, is the best written, and I would highly, if you're looking for one on Lepanto, I'd go for that one. Um, and as I said, the Siege of the Great Siege by Bradford, I'd recommend the Siege of Malta. So if you're looking for some reading suggestions, the Lepanto battle is, is phenomenal. The, the Great Siege is really good. Um, these are all things that uh, I consider to be beach reading. Uh, and I'll be posting more about this on Facebook and also on BuckSexton.com in the future. So keep an eye out at those venues. I think the plan will be to finish it in the final hour of the show on Monday. We'll be right back in a moment here with your uh, most interesting Facebook comments on the show. The Freedom Hut speaks when we get back. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Those of you who are new to Buck Sexton with America Now or, or to just me as a radio host may not know that I started out, gosh, I can't remember how many years ago it was now, and I had this idea that, in retrospect, seems like it was smarter than it was, which was to live tweet and live Facebook the show. And in the era of social media, this was sort of new thinking for radio. Most radio hosts don't don't do that. Really, mostly I did it during the breaks, but sometimes I'd manage to respond to something or see something while I was on air and, you know, can walk and chew gum at the same time and would be able to fire off a quick response while I was doing the show. Uh, but it was mostly in the earliest days when the Freedom Hut was getting its start. And I should note that the Freedom Hut, uh, which I call the show, it's something that came to me from my time in the CIA, actually. Uh, there was a contest to, to give a, a name to our office. And the idea was that we wanted to come up with uh, something that we could call it other than, you know, the, the, the west section of the building or whatever the heck it was at the time. And the idea was that we could come up with something and vote on it. And I thought that it would be fun just as a, as a joke to call the office the Freedom Hut. Uh, and it was just it was not in any official sense, but we were just like, all right, I'll see you back in the Freedom Hut among my peers. And everyone well, I shouldn't say everybody, but some people really, really liked the idea and it was immediately shot down. And so so we did not. The office was not called the Freedom Hut, uh, but I thought it would be kind of fun years later when I started my own show to give it the name that I had always wished I was able to give my office in the CIA. Um, like I said, it did not happen. But uh, that was one of the earliest uh, inventions of the show. And, and then also... All of you, Team Buck, um, which came to me, I think, largely because uh, the notion of team, and, and I, I speak in, in those terms, I talk about a team. One of my all-time favorite jobs was right after college when I was waiting to get a security clearance to, so I could go work for the CIA. I was a high school junior varsity soccer coach, and it really came out of nowhere. It was, uh, I was already working at the Council on Foreign Relations you know, the Bilderbergs, the Illuminati, you know, they gather together and, you know, the CFR. I mean, they are the government. I mean, they're running things behind the scenes. Uh, but the CFR is really just a stuffy think tank. But I, I had the academic credentials to get a gig there for a while. So I did. But I had a schedule that finished at about three thirty or four o'clock every day because, you know, academic timeline, academic work hours. Uh, and I was able to coach JV soccer. And it was one of the and I give my parents full credit because initially I was like, oh, it'll be a lot. And, you know, this is, I'm not going to coach for a career. They said, no, you're going to coach now because you're going to coach because you'd be good at it. Um, just so happened. I mean, not to brag, but the Regis Raiders junior varsity soccer team. I wonder, by the way, if Raiders, it's not specified who's raiding whom, but I wonder now because raiding is pillaging. It's probably politically incorrect. But the Regis Rager, uh, not Ragers, that sounds like they're throwing parties. The Regis Raiders um, were in under my stewardship. I believe the final tally was we were 10-1-1 uh, or something like that. Uh, we had a phenomenal, a phenomenal season. And in fact, we only lost the last game of the season before the playoffs because I didn't play our starters because I didn't want to lose them for the playoffs because we had already clinched first place because we had been undefeated up to that point. 
But I digress. I loved coaching. It was a lot of fun. And I really hope to get back to it one day. Uh, I had a great team. And I still hear from some of my players now. It's it's really funny because I had neither worked for the CIA nor come out and told the world that I had worked at the CIA, obviously. Uh, Nor had I been a media personality when they all knew me. So they get a kick out of it now. And I wasn't that much older than them. Some of the kids on my team were, I guess, 16 or 17. And I was 22, 23 at the time. So it was a lot of fun. Um, It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed coaching. And so Team Buck was a natural fit. But I would tweet and I would use Facebook because I was so appreciative of everybody listening to the show. And I still feel that way now, which is why I always get a kick out of it when people write to me and they want to tell me what they think about the show or they want to share articles. And uh, I can tell you the volume has gotten to be enough that I can't always give if somebody sends me an eight-part question that is, that's an 800-word essay with queries attached to it, I will read it. And if I give you a thumbs up or something, it's my way of saying, read it, taken on board, you know, appreciate you sending. Uh, but I don't always have the ability to respond with an 800-word essay of my own. Um, but that said, I really appreciate the notes, and I really think it's, um, it, it, it's it, look, it's what keeps me going. Radio is a very, very rough business. The three-hour-a-day show is a, a heavy lift. I know a lot of people, I think, that could do uh, a day of radio, maybe a week of radio. I know very few people that could do radio three hours a day for a month, for a year, for a career. So uh, I do appreciate the, the encouragement and the support. Uh, so that's my way of saying I've always been leveraging the digital side of this business simultaneously with the mic and the wonderful radio stations and affiliates that we have here on the show as just a means of being in connectivity with the audience. I love taking the phone calls. We've got Action Movie Quote Friday going on, which is one of our, our fun uh, things that started in the old days on the Buck Sexton show. Um, but here we are now, and I can look over your Facebook, uh, some of the Facebook messages, and I want to share some of them with you. So with that in mind, here is Team Buck Speaks. This one comes from Tim. He writes, Buck, the historic deep dives are awesome. Please keep up the good work. Just no pop quizzes afterwards, okay? Uh, Used to that in school. Well, I can promise you, uh, Tim, that there will be no pop quizzes and there are more history deep dives coming. I'll try to spread them out and I'll usually make it a segment, a show, if I'm going to do, not not every show, but it'll be one segment at a time and I'll spread them out. And that way people can listen. You can always pull them together on the podcasts if you want. Uh, maybe we'll release them all in one special uh, additional episode at some other point on the podcast. Uh, but I also don't want people to feel like they're getting a three hour long history lecture. So it'll usually be a segment or two when we do them, which will only be on occasion. But I, I'm so glad that you guys like them, and it's uh, it's a really a lot of fun for me. Brian also writes, love the history deep dives. How about something from the Barbary Wars? Brian, I am a step ahead of you. I have the end of Barbary terror sitting right next to me as I talk to you, and uh, I'm already on it. I've been planning that for a long time. I've promised my audience, those who've been with me for years, we would do a Barbary Wars deep dive, and at a minimum... Uh, I'm going to do a podcast series on it and maybe do some of it on air here as well. Again, it really depends on how much interest there is from folks like you. But thank you very much for sending me the uh, words of support. We get William writing in as well via. And if you want to write, by the way, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, send me a message and I can uh, my team can see it, too. So just understand that I'm not the only person that's reading the messages. 
Uh, so, you know, if, if you have something, if, if you want to pass along some uh, super secret squirrel information about the Illuminati and the Bilderbergs, just be aware that I'm not the only person with access and the only person that's checking the inbox, but I will see it and I'll respond uh, as soon as I can. William, again, facebook.com slash Buck Saxon. William writes, hey, Buck, I've listened to many talk shows and yours is by far the best. What is your opinion of Trump bringing a slander or libel suit against some of these people who are outright calling him a white supremacist? I hope to hear your reply on the podcast. I listen to every show, William. First of all, William, thank you so much. You're incredibly kind, and I really do uh, greatly appreciate the support. As to Trump and bringing a slander case, I I don't think that, because public officials... There's a very high bar for slander against public officials. Remember, libel is written, slander is spoken. Uh, always easy to remember the, the alliteration, slander is spoken, and then libel is obviously the written side of defamation against somebody. So I don't think that's going to work, and, and I honestly don't really want to encourage public officials to think that they can deal with nasty criticism about them by suing or going to the courts. And there's a high bar, and there should be a high bar for suing in those cases. Uh, so my answer to your question is, I know I appreciate that white supremacist is a term, as I've been saying on the show, that's thrown around way too much and is done intentionally with a hap ha- in a haphazard fashion, but I don't think you can expect any Trump uh, action on that specifically. All right, more of Team Buck Speaks here on Facebook. Uh, Dave writes, your impression of alternate nostril breathing had me in stitches. Dave, thank you very much. I'm not going to lie to you. made me laugh too, so I'm glad you enjoyed that one as well. I like alternate not... Oh, I can't even do it right now. I'll, I'll lose it. All right, so yes, thank you very much for the support. Appreciate it. Alternate nostril. I've got a message here from Jaina. Actually, no, it's John using Jaina's account. He writes, Hey, Buck, this is John. Uh, I don't have a Facebook account, so I'm typing this on my wife's. I wanted to let you know because you asked. I really enjoyed the history lessons. That's it and Semper Fi, if that is how you spell it. Um, well, y- yes, he did spell it correctly. And uh, thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. And tell Jaina, thank you as well. I also have a message here from uh, Kayla. I hope I'm pronouncing it pr- correctly. I'm, pardon me if I'm messing up the name. Hi, from an original Squad Saturday listener. I'm born and raised in Manhattan, and now I'm in Daytona uh, in Florida. We have no power, flooding, and barely enough cell service to post a message, but we are alive and blessed. Just wanted to say we missed the show. I listen live every day and subscribe to all your podcast mediums for years now. If Stitcher is down, I'm okay because I've got others as backup. I sign up for the newsletter, too. Hashtag Team Buck. My only comfort during these withdrawal pangs is that when Irma's destruction is gone, I can marathon listen to all the missed shows. Shields high, Kayla. Uh, uh, thank you so much for, for your kind words, and uh, I'm glad you're okay down there in Florida. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, the, uh, much appreciated the message, and just good to know that you're okay. And indeed, the podcast or on-demand listening on the iHeart app, you can always do that, or just go to BuckSaxon.com. You can listen there. Theta writes, oh my goodness, your Hillary impression cracks me up. With all the heavy issues going on in this country, even the world right now, it helps to laugh shields high. Well, Theta, I completely agree, and I'm really glad that you uh, enjoy the Hillary impression. I enjoy doing it. James writes in, 
Uh, hey, Buck, big fan, original Saturday Squad. I have what I think might be a great guest idea. Douglas O. Murray, author of The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam. It's a fascinating book. Take care, brother. Come back with your shield or on it. I like it. First of all, James is throwing out there the Spartan motto, which was really the basis for Shields High. Those who wonder, well, Buck, why do you say Shields High? It's because I used to say, I used to talk about ancient history. We've been talking about uh, really Renaissance history recently with the Cross versus Crescent Siege of Malta. Uh, but I also like to talk about ancient Rome, ancient, ancient Greece, particularly Sparta and the fights between Sparta and Athens. And we, we even would work in the term sometimes uh, shield tosser which was an ancient Greek uh, pejorative. This was to say that somebody was being a coward in anything, right? So if you, if, uh, you, you could say, for example, that recently uh, the Republican Congress has been a bunch of shield tossers, uh, and it meant that because you had this big round shield, uh, hoplon, from which we get the term hoplite in ancient Greek phalanx warfare, and this shield was large and heavy, and if you were going to flee... You obviously don't want to be running around with this big circular shield, so you'd throw it on the ground, and hence a shield tosser, which is a way of calling somebody uh, a coward. So um, we have some, we've had some fun with the terminology, and shields high was essentially it's essentially the opposite of a shield tosser in ancient Greek parlance. And come back with your shield or on it is what this is the the legend the Spartan women used to say to their husbands when they would leave. Uh, when they uh, spartiate warriors would leave uh, for battle. Um, but James, I will check out that book, The Strange Death of Europe. I think we've actually had that author on the radar as a possible guest, and uh, we will try to track that down. By the way, I do love uh, guest suggestions as well. If you've got somebody that hasn't been on, if he's already been on the show, he's on our radar. And uh, unless there's a, a pressing reason, you know, we will work through that and get back to people when we can. But if there's somebody you've never heard that you think would be a really good fit and that the folks that are listening to Buck Sexton with America Now should hear, Facebook is a great way to tell me uh, what you think. All right, we got uh, maybe a couple more here because I know you can't all call in and some of you are listening and the show is on a little bit of a delay. And so you're not able to, we're, you know, we're on, we're on over 100 stations across the country, but on some of them it, it's a little bit after uh, when I'm on air. And so... Facebook is great because this is a way for me to interact with you and you can tell me your thoughts on the show and I get it quickly and can respond. So like I was saying, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, send me messages there. I read everything in that inbox. Uh, Mark writes the following. Uh, Honestly, I found you about two years ago. You're an amazing talk host, analyst, and your storytelling is great and extraordinary. I remember one of the first deep dives was during October and you did a piece on Dracula and it was amazing. So I'm just looking for a way that I can share this with my kids, family, and friends, uh, as well as you present it. Shields high, and thank you for taking the time. Well, Mark, you are very kind, and I'm so glad that you appreciated the real. We did a, a, uh, this was last year, and I'm planning to do it again this year. This will probably be in the third hour of the show again, which is when I do a lot of my experimental radio stuff, uh, which I have found people tend to enjoy and like because it's different. I mean, by the time you get to this show, I know you've had the internet and TV and all this stuff all day. You know, if if there's a, if there's a, I don't know, if there's something going on somewhere that's big in the news, I want to give you my take on it, which is what we do at the top of the show. But, you you know, I'm not going to spend all day just going, or all of our show, all of our time together, just going over 
uh, a laundry list of news stories. I want to do other things. I want to do history and political philosophy and storytelling. And that's a lot of that we'll do in the third hour. Uh, but Mark, we're going to do Dracula, the real Dracula, the history of Dracula or Vlad Dracul. Uh, we will get into this Vlad the Impaler. We'll get into that um, this year around Halloween time as or on Halloween or close to it as well, because that did, that people last year loved that on the show. And we're going to kind of revisit it and and I'll do an even deeper dive and we'll have some fun with spooky sound effects and everything else. So that's the plan coming up in the end of, of October. If you have any ideas for specials, things you want me to cover on the show, uh, topics that you would just love a deep dive on, I live for that stuff, guys. So just let me know. Facebook.com slash Buck Saxon is the place to do it. This has been Team Buck Speaks. I hope you're uh, enjoying hearing some of your messages to me read aloud. There'll be more of them coming up. And uh, on the flip side of this break, we're going to close it out. Close it out strong. We'll be right back. Well, this is the uh, saddest part of the show for me because I get to say... Uh, goodbye to all of you for at least the day, but I'm going to be back all next week, of course, Monday through Friday, as per usual here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, I have a, a weekend of no particular plans. I think I'm going to an engagement party, and that's always fun to go to an engagement party when you're uh, in a relationship and, and need to get engaged soon, because it's not like that you know, comes up or or turns up the pressure at all. It's not like all of a sudden she's like, look at the beautiful ring my friend has it's such a beautiful ring that she has on that her boyfriend gave her because he's now her fiance that's not like a thing that ever happens to anybody right you never when you're uh, at that stage of your life go to a engagement party and all of a sudden he or or even go to a wedding where all of a sudden wasn't that a beautiful wedding boyfriend who needs to put a ring on it i'm just i mean Miss Molly would never say any of this, but I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really, other than that, I've got a pretty pretty mellow weekend planned. Um, I, I do really appreciate all the Facebook messages. Um, I'm still trying to think of more experimental segments. I I have I know I keep saying you're going to meet Commie Bear. You will. That's going to happen as well. I've got all all kinds of plans uh, lined up for the, the show going forward that we're going to be uh, trying new things, but that's why your feedback is so important. I really do want it. I want to know what you like, what you want more of. If you don't like something, I want to hear that too, but you know, be nice. I put a lot of time and effort into this and I'm really trying to make sure that every minute of your time that you give me, whether, uh, listening live on air through our wonderful affiliates across the country or listening, uh, on the iHeart app on demand or to the podcast, iTunes is a great way to get it. Buck Sexton with America now is the name. Uh, I do want to hear from all of you on that. So please do uh, use the uh, various means at your disposal to give me your thoughts on things. Uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Those of you on Facebook, we're going to set up an email address too. So That'll be for everyone to write in and tell us thoughts there. That'll be coming up next week or the week after. Have a great weekend, everybody. I will see you on Monday. Shields high.